good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, uh, we're going to be discussing the uh, most recent revisions to the American Arbitration Association's commercial arbitration rules today. I'll briefly introduce myself. I'm Kent Sinclair. I am um, uh, chair or co-chair of the Boston Bar Association Sm Solo Small Firm Forum. Uh, and I also uh, uh, have my own law practice, Sinclair Law, where a significant part of my work involves um, representing clients in commercial arbitrations, as well as um, for about six years now, I have served as an arbitrator um, through the American Arbitration Association. Um, and uh, in a second, I'll introduce Lisa Romeo, but uh, I'll first make a couple of points. The views that we're expressing today are our own and not necessarily those of our organizations. And uh, the information we're sharing with you today is for educational purposes and should not be considered as legal advice. Um, the um, chat function uh, is disabled, um, but uh, we encourage you to um, ask questions through the Q&A function uh, here in Zoom uh, as we go. So I am uh, very pleased uh, to be able to do this presentation today with uh, Lisa Romeo, who is uh, an assistant vice president with the um, American Arbitration Association and who leads the Boston office of the AAA, a position that she um, only recently, she recently became the head of the, uh, of the Boston office. She has, however, been with the, um, the American Arbitration Association for, um, I think pretty much your entire career um, and has held almost every position there, I believe. Um, and I'm sure in no time she'll be the uh, the head of the entire organization. So we're really lucky to have Lisa with us today. She's been working diligently on educating arbitrators about the uh, about the revisions to the commercial arbitration rules. And uh, we view this as an opportunity. I, I, I can see because we can see who the uh, participants are. I know there's some arbitrators on with us, but there are also others who are practitioners um, who may have varying levels of experience with commercial arbitration under the AAA rules. And this is really an opportunity for us to, uh, to, to provide information about the revised rules to the practitioners as well as um, uh, to uh, the arbitrators who may have joined us. So with that said, Lisa, do you want to add anything before we dive in? No, let's uh, let's hit the ground running here. <laughs> yeah. we, we are, by the way, using the same um, uh, the same deck here as is used with arbitrators in the training um, uh, that we've been undergoing um, as, as we go through. So Lisa's going to sort of drive the discussion and I'm going to throw in some color commentary and <laughs> And try to come up with some thoughts about uh, about drafting that um, that you might want to take into account um, because of the new rules. So go ahead, Lisa. Sorry. All right. Thanks, Kent. Um, and thanks, everybody. Um, as I would like to echo what Kent said, please be sure and uh, type in the Q and A if you have questions as we go along. Um, you know, we want this to be useful to you. Um, so just a little bit of a background on how we got to these, these new rules. Um, the rules were last revised in 2013. So we're talking, you know, basically 10 years ago. So we were due for a, uh, a an upgrade or a revision of the rules. And the process 
took two years. And we started with a AAA internal working group focusing on internal feedback and then um, went through um, party surveys. We talked to arbitrators and well uh, as well as two of the committees of the AC, AAA ICDR Council, which is our uh, board of directors. Um, Many of the changes that take that are are written here are smaller changes, but they actually codify practices that have been in place for years. Um, so it's really just kind of writing down what we were already doing. But there are still a couple of significant changes in the rules. And these rules do apply to cases filed after September 1 of 2022. Any cases filed before that, the rules don't switch in the middle of the case. Um, you stay with the rules under which your case would fi was filed, which is the 2013 rules. That that, that can have um, uh, that can present some minor challenges. Um, I have two ongoing arbitrations right now. One of which is governed by the new rules, and one by the old rules. And so I'm always having to think about where uh, where these changes have been uh, have been made. I, I know those will play out fairly quickly. But uh, do be aware that um, that if you file an arbitration now, you're going to be under the new rules. Okay, um, so one of the things that we did was increase the dollar thresholds on two of the separate set of procedures. So under the commercial arbitration rules, there are the expedited rules, the regular rules, and the large complex commercial rules. And your case is placed in one of those sets of rules based on the size of the claim. Um, the differences are mainly in discovery, how much and if you can get any, as well as the timing and expectation for the length of the case, um, in addition to the number of arbitrators. So the thresholds that increased, the expedited procedures went from 75,000 to 100,000. The large complex commercial procedures went from 500,000 to a million. And now if your contract is silent on the number of arbitrators, the minimum threshold we'll consider to appoint a point of three is 3 million. And that used to be 1 million. Yeah. Um, and that does only apply when your contract is silent on the number of arbitrators. That's right. And you know, I, I, I might put that last one into a, a, a significant change category. Um, it is um, often that parties, not often, sometimes parties will write into their arbitration provision um, that only one arbitrate, that disputes will be decided by only one arbitrator, or they may draft the clause to say if um, understanding that the default used to be if it was one million you would get three arbitrators unless your provision uh, arbitration provision was different. You People might have written in a larger amount, say 2 million um, gets three arbitrators. Um, you might want to revisit those, uh, those clauses if you have um, sort of standard contracts for a client um, or if you're drafting new clauses, don't use the old form without considering the fact that you now have this $3 million threshold for the appointment of three arbitrators. And Lisa, do you have any insight into why that particular change was made? Well, uh, three arbitrators is 
much more expensive than a single arbitrator. Um, it's not three times more expensive as far as arbitrator compensation. It tends to be the, the stats have come out between four and a half and five times more expensive because you're not just paying you know, one arbitrator three times, you're paying three arbitrators to listen to everything, but then also talk to each other about it. Um, so it does significantly increase the cost. It also can slow a case down because you're dealing with, you know, three arbitrator schedules. Um, and, you know, as anyone who's ever tried to schedule a three-member panel with, you know, busy counsel and busy arbitrators, uh, it can be a challenge. And, you know, arbitration is supposed to be um, efficient, economical, and speedy. Um, and three arbitrators uh, doesn't necessarily always conform to that. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've really upped our game when it comes to staying on top of training our arbitrators. Um, I think, you know, 30 years, the, the difference in the quality of the panel between 30 years ago and today is, you know, the gap is amazing. Um, and I, I think there's, you know, people look at three arbitrator panels as a fail safe as kind of a, a risk mitigation uh, tool. Um, so you don't get a rogue arbitrator who goes off the re reservation. Um, and I think that's, you know, much less likely to happen these days than it might have in the past. Yeah, I, I will say having served on the both as a, a single arbitrator on cases and on three arbitrator panels that um, I, I do think in some instances, there's a real value to having multiple arbitrators. Mm -hmm. It can be very difficult to anticipate what those instances may be, though, when you're drafting your arbitration provision that goes into a contract. Yeah. Um, often parties, even if, it, even if it says you'll have three arbitrators, or even if you have a claim that's over the default amount um, uh, that would put you into three arbitrators where your, your arbitration provision is silent, parties will often agree to a single arbitrator, um, Absolutely. Uh, especially because through the selection process, they can identify one one arbitrator that they're both comfortable with. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Okay. All right, there we go. Sorry, it took, yeah. took me a second. Um, so this is just uh, talking a little bit uh, more um, on arbitrator number and selection. Uh, Rule 17 now clarifies how we interpret clause language as to the number of arbitrators. Um, you know, if it doesn't specify, we start with a single arbitrator. Um, as you say, after three million, we have that discussion. And if the parties can't agree, then it's three. Um, and the use of the singular or plural is not sufficient to specify the number of arbitrators. Um, we also indicate that the chairperson should be a member of the AAA's roster of arbitrators unless the parties agree to the contrary. Often on a three-member panel, they'll have a party-appointed clause and parties uh, may choose to select somebody who's not on the AAA roster, uh, but the rules now do specify that the chairperson should be from the AAA. You know, that it should be somebody who's familiar with the rules and procedures and how to manage a case under the AAA rules um, because, you know, there are folks who are not familiar with it and it can um, really slow a case down when when, when a, a, the chair may not be as familiar with our rules. Uh, so that, and of course, as it says, uh, the parties have are free to waive that provision if they, if they so desire. Um, and if there is no, for example, if the clause doesn't specify how the chair is gonna be selected, it just says there's gonna be three arbitrators, um, then we, we pick the chair, which, 
you know, other than in a party appointed situation, I think we've pretty much been doing that um, fairly consistently anyway. This is one of those rules that's codifying something that we had been doing in practice already. Good. Thanks, Lisa. Again, I don't think here, I mean, there's certainly if you want something other than the AAA um, arbitrator selection process, this is the place to uh, to specify it, right? To, to carve out how, how the chairperson would be selected or how the um, how a single arbitrator or how the panel will be selected. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, this doesn't really change the need to specify that in drafting the arbitration provision. Okay, so um, the updated rule seven, uh, so these these are the, the changes that deal with the arbitrator's authority. Um, in rule seven, um, it reaffirms, it, the rule has always said this, but now it says it even more explicitly, um, that the arbitrator does not need to review jurisdiction-related issues first to court. Um, the rule has always said this, um, but it is now, uh, you know, really jumped in further and further confirm this. Under the rules, the arbitrator has the authority to rule on their own jurisdiction, plain and simple. Um, we also added uh, to the rule regarding mod post-award modification of the award. Um, it does allow an arbitrator now at a party's request to interpret or explain the award. Uh, this is new. Um, and as noted here on the, the slide, um, it's fashioned after our, our ICDR, which is the International Center for Dispute Resolution, uh, the international rules allowing the arbitrator to explain the award on a party's motion. It's not often that parties don't understand an award. Um, you know, the, the case staff at the AAA will re review an award for clarity. Um, you know, theoretically, if I'm reviewing an award and I can understand what the arbitrator is saying and awarding, uh, the party who was at the actual hearing should be able to as well. Um, so hopefully, uh, you know, that won't be used that much. Um, but I suppose there are instances where it might come up. Yeah, I think um, this is a very helpful um, yeah. change, not one that will be used often in part because of the process of issuing awards and the, the uh, and the AAA staff making sure that the awards are clear. Um, but it, 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 it does mean that the parties, not a motion for reconsideration type filing to be made, but it's more like a motion for clarification they could do now. Um, if there's uh, perhaps disagreement over uh, by the parties on how they um, how they view a particular ruling um, by the uh, arbitrator arbitrators um, the, uh, the we've got the ability to increase efficiency by allowing the arbitrators to give a selection I'd point out there are very tight time frames for being able to do this as well um, so it shouldn't add a great deal of length to the case sorry so, here yeah Somehow I ended up back right there. Um, also, um, several rules were revised to make explicit the arbitrator's authority to compel the use of video, audio, or other electronic means as a method of hearing for some or all evidence. Um, it it was implied before um, because the the rules do state that the arbitrator sets the date, time, and place of hearing. This is you know came out of uh, you know the pandemic where. 
once we started uh, transitioning to Zoom and a party objective, one party wanted to go to Zoom, the other party said, no, we want to do it in person. Um, There's a question, well, do arbitrators really have the authority to order someone to appear by video? Um, and um, they do. And it's my understanding that several courts have upheld that uh, authority, um, but it now makes it makes it explicit. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I have two comments about this one. Um, the first of all, I, I, it is, um, I think it's very um, helpful to make clear that video um, proceedings are um, as legitimate as in-person proceedings. I, I think most people took that for granted, but there are some instances where that's not entirely. Uh, or, or that might not be clear. And one of those can come up in the context of compelling witnesses to appear at an arbitration proceeding. Um, and so I guess the second point I make here is arbitrators now have flexibility, as well as the parties having flexibility um, around uh, doing sort of hybrid style um, uh, arbitration hearings. Um, and uh, in terms of um, specific witnesses, you may have an in-person hearing, but you could have expert witnesses appearing um, by video conference remotely. It's a big cost saver to avoid the travel expenses for experts, for example. Um, or you may you may be able to compel testimony um, of a witness um, uh, without having to pick up and move an arbitration hearing to another state um, so that you have the authority to compel someone to appear under the Federal Arbitration Act. Um, and so I think it's uh, I think it's useful. I also find it interesting they refer to other electronic means. Uh, and that was in there before. And some clauses refer to other electronic means, some don't. It has me wondering um, if uh, video is now um, very accepted uh, for arbitration hearings. What other electronic means are we going to be looking at in the future? And how will we be conducting our arbitrations in 10 years? Um, yeah. Perhaps it'll be in the metaverse. Um, perhaps will be um, holograms um, <laughs> sitting around a virtual table. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the other electronic means are. But in terms of drafting, um, you may well want to consider specifying um, that uh, absent agreement of the parties otherwise that hearings will be in person or by video uh, or by teleconference. Um, and uh, uh, um, or or specifying hybrid, but in any event, you're going to be able to make argument to an arbitrator who is going to be driven by finding um, finding uh, what is efficient and effective and just in the in the proceedings. But um, uh, it is worth thinking through whether or not you want to specify, at least for smaller value cases, a default of uh, a video conference for the merits hearing. Yeah. Most large cases right now are all hybrid. Right. It's just the way that it's going now. All right. right. Which presents some interesting uh, challenges is too strong a word, but it has changed some of the things you need to think through when you're preparing there. You actually need to have a hearing room that's got video conferencing technology mm -hmm. and, um, and it can present some challenges for the stenographers and things like that. Yeah. 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 Um, Go ahead, Lisa. So so, so this is the big this, one. This is another um, big one. This is the big one. Uh, this is there is now a rule, uh, rule eight on consolidation and joinder, and it's our first ever commercial role rule on consolidation and joinder. Um, it there has been a rule. Uh, 
in our construction rules for a number of years, um, but this is the first time it's been um, explicitly put out in the commercial rules. Um, it makes explicit what we had considered their implicit authority um, to determine whether or not consolidation or joinder should take place. Um, so um, first, when you when it comes to consolidation, so if there are, say, three cases out there, all with arbitrators, we the, the AAA can decide whether or not the arbitrator who was appointed to the first filed case gets to review review the consolidation request, or alternatively, we can appoint a consolidation arbitrator whose sole job is to review the party's arguments regarding consolidation and make a decision. Um, the There is guidance in the rule itself on what the arbitrator should consider um, in deciding whether or not to consolidate an arbitration. It also provides, um, allows the arbitrator to make certain decisions about moving forward, which arbitrator stays, um, whether or not they're, you know, how the arbitrator is going to be selected. If there's more than, if no arbitrators are in place and now we've got six parties, you know, how are you going to pick an arbitrator? Um, how the compensation is going to be allocated. So the consolidation arbitrator ends up having a lot of power, but at the end of the day, they wipe their hands and, and go home um, once they've made their decision. Um, there is the, uh, the same provision exists uh, regarding the joinder um, that, you know, if there's no, if no arbitrator has been appointed yet to the case, we appoint a joinder arbitrator whose sole job is to decide the joinder issue. Um, very much like for those of you who are familiar, our rule used to be 38, but I think it's now 39 uh, under the, the emergency measures of protection arbitrator whose sole job was to decide the emergency measures. Um, and then they wiped their hands and went home. Um, same thing here in joinder. Um, under, unlike the consolidation rule, there aren't real guidelines for the arbitrator to decide whether or not um, joinder is appropriate. It's solely at the arbitrator's discretion. I, I found that to be to be interesting when you when you look at the rule. It's maybe the longest rule in the rules. Yeah. I know you can't really see it there, but it's two <laughs> whole pages in the book. That's a big rule. Um, so. Uh, they, the the provision on consolidation, right? So the potential bringing together multiple existing arbitration proceedings before the, the AAA, bringing them together into one one proceeding. There are a series of of criteria that um, uh, that are identified as something that should be considered by the arbitrator that's making that uh, that decision. Um, for joinder, uh, right, and that would be bringing in. Uh, additional additional parties, um, they don't spell that out. My my sense is right. The, the the consolidation rules are fairly similar to what you see out there under the federal rules of civil procedure. Um, my guess will be that arbitrators will look to uh, for for joinder issues um, will look to uh, factors similar to those under the federal rules of civil procedure on a motion for joinder. Um, but but it is uh, it is complicated by the fact that they also have to consider whether or not a party is someone who's a party to the arbitration provision. There are certain 
circumstances where parties who are not a signatory to the contract with an arbitration provision um, could be brought into an arb uh, into an arbitration proceeding. So it's definitely more complicated than than you would have uh, uh, if a if a judge were looking at the joinder issue in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I do I do have my very first joinder request under this new rule. Um, it is a joinder request, not a consolidation request, but um, it's it's in it's I have appointed the, the joinder arbitrator, but we haven't scheduled a meeting yet. So we'll see how that plans out. And I, I, I was thinking maybe somebody might have some questions about the joinder rule, but I don't see anything popping into the Q&A box. I remind Lisa, everybody, I mean, feel free to jump in and. Um, yeah, please, please don't hesitate to ask questions, but I'll ask you a, a, a question, Lisa. Do you um, do you think that this provision is going to be utilized often? I mean, it, you, you had the ability to make these considerations before. My sense was they didn't come up often. Yeah, they, they don't come up a ton. Consolidation tends to come up more than joinder. Um, but... I don't know. It'll be interesting to see whether or not this opens the floodgates. Um, you know, I never really thought that the, I mean, prior to the emergency rules in place, we didn't get a lot of requests, um, maybe because the rules were in place and people just went and got a TRO. But, you know, we get a decent number of those, you know, I mean, it's in the in the grand scheme of things under the Rule 38, which was instituted in the 2013 rules. Um you know, I think it ends up that 2% of every commercial case that was filed in a given year, we ha have a Rule 38 motion associated with them, you know, somewhere in a, you know, but, um, you know, we'll see if it kind of opens the floodgates and, you know, rather than filing multiple arbitrations, people are now doing the consolidation and joinder. And I didn't see any um, any particular drafting concerns around drafting an arbitration provision is it related to consolidation or, or joinder. I don't see this as something that you're going to want to try to, in all likelihood, you're not, there won't be a reason to try to, to no. draft around this provision or, or, or change, uh, change, change this provision. Um, uh, so uh, do, do you agree with that? Is there other drafting yeah, considerations you know, here? Um, I mean, maybe in a highly complex transaction with all kinds of, you know, moving parts, multiple parties, multiple contracts, that might be somewhere where you might consider putting some guidance in your clause. But other than that, probably not. Yeah, great. Thanks. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Um, Confidentiality. So the, this is yeah. a big one in my yeah, mind. Yeah, so some of the, the the this slide is all about the rules around confidentiality and conduct. Um, so there is a new confidentiality rule in the in the AAA rules um, that reiterates the confidentiality requirements for arbitrators and the AAA. Now, the, this is one of those rules that I have. Um, you know, that I said that, you know, this is this is practice being made explicit. Um, the AAA under our employee, under our code of ethics and the arbitrator under their code of ethics are required to keep things confidential. You know, somebody calls, asks me, you know, who this case is. I'm like, you know, I, I can't tell unless they're a party to the case. I don't even admit we've got it in, you know, in the office. Um, you know, one thing it doesn't. But, but, but to be clear, that wasn't explicit in the rules before. No. 
it was, it was explicit in, in, in practice. separate standards and codes yeah. of ethics for right. employees and arbitrators. It's right. always been the case right. that the uh, AAA um, personnel and arbitrators have a strict obligation of confidentiality. Yeah. Right. It yeah. wasn't in the rules in, in right. the in the rules themselves before. Right. Yeah. But this also, you know, um, always, you know, puts up the flag. A lot of parties believe that arbitration is confidential among themselves, and it's not. It's private because, you know, the filings are not public avail av publicly available. But absent anything in their arbitration provision or under a protective order or confidentiality order issued by the arbitrator, any party is free to talk about their arbitration you know, they can go on, uh, you know, TV and talk about it. They can, you know, take out a banner ad, you know, banner ad in the Boston Globe and say, you know, we've got an arbitration. Um, but, um, you know, they're absent, you know, some sort of provision in a contract or um, an order from the arbitrator, the parties can do, say whatever they want. So this is where I see it. Um, um, some sig real significance in this change. It's Rule 45B now explicitly provides authority to the arbitrator to issue orders related to the confidentiality um, of the arbitration proceeding or other matters in connection with the arbitration. Um, and um, I see this um, in some ways codifying existing practice, right? Arbitrators have always had authority. It's always been, at least in my mind, very clear that arbitrators have had authority to issue orders around the confidentiality of documents or information that's exchanged as part of the arbitration proceedings. Because as I'm sure everyone on this call knows, or on this video conference knows, the, the, the discovery is much more limited in arbitration, um, but, and there's a, but there's a, it still exists. And uh, sometimes there's a need for extensive exchange of documents or other information. Um, and so arbitrators are often called upon to issue protective orders like you would see in court. Um, and, and because of their inherent authority to allow uh, um, uh, the exchange of information um, um, sort of beyond just the exhibits or the materials that are going to be used in the in the merits hearing, they've always had authority to also put some provisos around it. So to put confidentiality, protect trade secrets or um, or personal information. Um, where, where I think this rule has an expansion is, is the ability to put in, um, uh, uh, the arbitrators have the ability to put in place orders that relate to confidentiality of proceedings, right? Now, arbitration is a creature of contract, right? You don't get to arbitration unless the parties have agreed to arbitrate whether it's an initial, an initial contract or an agreement that you reach after a dispute arises, the parties have to agree to it. And if they don't say anything about confidentiality as to the parties in there, um, uh, it, it has generally been viewed, because there wasn't a rule related to this, that arbitrators really, if the parties couldn't agree on something, that arbitrators were limited in what they could do in terms of uh, of limiting the parties in, in terms of what they can do with information about the proceeding itself. Um, I think that changes now because by adopting these rules in your, in your contractual agreement, you are now specifying that arbitrators have authority to impose confidentiality obligations related to the proceedings. 
And arbitrators are not constrained like judges in terms of having a default that the proceedings should be public. It's quite the opposite. Um, so I, I, I think it I, I, I think it may be more of an academic than a real uh, change, right? I don't know that much is really going to change in the process, but I really wonder if in the future you're going to see uh, you're going to see more. Um, usually, parties are able to agree on these issues, right? In fact, one of the one of the reasons parties may have selected arbitration is a desire to keep the proceeding confidential. Um, and so uh, often parties can agree around these, but it'll be interesting to see what happens when they don't agree. And one party is asking for a more restrictive confidentiality order than, than another. And then what happens when it's violated? Um, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Um, so the uh, the other uh, rule reference on this slide is Rule 2C, which incorporates the standard of conduct for parties and representatives. Uh, this is a, these standards have been in place for at least I had to guess maybe six eight years, uh, really to prevent um, parties from being abusive to staff and arbitrators, um, which unfortunately does happen. Um, you know, not 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 often in commercial cases, although it does occasionally. It tends to happen more in the consumer and pro se teams. Um, but every now and then, um, you you get some folks who are who are not happy about things and and express their displeasure. And this gives us a standards. And at a certain point, we will um, you know decline to administer the case and remove it from arbitration if the conduct is exceptionally egregious. Um, but that, as I say, in the commercial arena, that doesn't really happen that often. Uh, I don't see any drafting around this uh, yeah. to be done. <laughs> Although I suppose it wouldn't hurt to put in your uh, arbitration provision that all participants shall be professional and, uh, <laughs> and, and polite. Let's ho hope you would like to believe that that shouldn't be necessary, but unfortunately it is. Um, so we have um, also strengthened our expedited procedures. And so the, the expedited procedures are designed for cases now under $100,000. It's anticipated that the ca these cases should really take no more than about 90, 100, 120 days tops. Um, they're designed to be have hearings done in a single day or uh, on documents only. Um, and you know, it's it's trying to stick to the the true nature of the true goal of arbitration of speed, efficiency, and economy. Um, so we've reinforced um, the rule five e five. Um, and it is much more strongly worded now that other than an exhibit exchange a couple days before the arbitration hearing, uh, there's no discovery in, under, in the expedited procedures. Um, there is no motion practice unless the arbitrator says that it's okay. Um, if the parties um, want more information exchange. And so also I should uh, clarify, also under the expedited procedures, the arbitrators sit for a flat fee and it's a relatively nominal fee. I mean, arbitrators are 
performing a public service when they serve on expedited procedures because they're not getting anything close to their hourly rate. I think I think it's currently $1,150 for an expedited case, um, which could include up to one day of hearing. And, you know, they've got to write an award and all that. But, you know, being an arbitrator is considered a public service. When, when I started, you didn't get paid for the first day, no matter what. And Everybody got $300 a day, no, no matter who you were. Uh, that has changed significantly in the last 30 plus years. Um, so under the new, the revised uh, expedited procedures, we're really trying to, there's been a bit of a creep of a more lit litigation style in expedited procedures, and we're trying to clamp down on that. If the parties decide that they want more discovery or they're going to need more than one day of hearing or they want motion practice, either the arbitrator or the AAA then has the authority to remove the case from the expedited procedures, which results in the fact that the arbitrator would then get their regular hourly rate. Um, so there is a bit of a financial incentive for the parties to, to stick to the expedited rules. Yeah. One of the things I find interesting about this change, Lisa, is uh, that um, you actually expanded the time period from 30 to 60 days and I view that as trying to give something that's more realistic. Yeah. Um, because in reality, very rarely were expedited matters done within 30 days as the old rule. Um, right. And, and, and the old rule said within 30 days of the arbitrator's appointment. Um, and it usually took you at least a week or so to get a, a preliminary hearing in place. So that cut that way down. Uh, virtually no hearings were taking place within 30 days. I, we, we made that a bit more realistic. Yeah, right. you're correct. And, and I take that not just to be a reminder to the parties that expedited means expedited, but these changes in terms of um, limiting to the exchange of exhibits, um, no, uh, no motion practice except for good cause, sort of restating that. That's always been the case, mm -hmm. but it's very explicit here now. And this 60 day rule as um, a uh, directive to arbitrators to take this schedule seriously and um, and and really push for the um, uh, to have these done in a very expedited fashion. Yeah. So, right. Uh, now, one thing, and maybe this is a good time to talk about it, Lisa. I have seen arbitration provisions that say that the arbitration shall be conducted. Um, pursuant to the commercial arbitration rules and the expedited, uh, and specifically referencing the expedited rules, irrespective of dollar value. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I don't know, is that a, how common is that? It's relatively common. I have million dollar plus cases, uh, cases that are large complex cases um, that are, that have the expedited procedures in them. Um, and Mainly, I think, because the, the drafters didn't read the expedited procedures. They want an expedited proceeding, but they don't understand that the expedited procedures means that there's no discovery, there's no motions, there's, you know, and, and um, the thing is, is that absent an agreement of the parties to waive the expedited procedures, if they're in the contract, neither the AAA or the arbitrator can waive those, and we have to stick to them. That's right. Um, and, so and, and, now it, the uh, and, and for some some parties, it's um, it's it's a strategy to say, 
we're not going to agree to waive the expedited procedures. Um, In those cases, the arbitrators will get their hourly rate because the expedited rules don't specify the rate. It just says a rate determined by the AAA. So the AAA can say you're getting your hourly rate and we're covered there. Um, But at the same time, you know, there's no motion practice under the expedited rules. You only get a list of five arbitrators as opposed to say a list of 15 to 20. Um, So some parties really... Can get into trouble if they're if they're putting that in expedited procedures in a contract that you know is many millions in value, and there's no discovery, right? Right. Um, other than seeing what the other side may be using at the hearing, um, mm-hmm. and you're limited to one day of the hear a uh, one day hearing. Um, Theoretically, and, yes. <laughs> and so, if you want to expedite the per, the the uh, arbitration process to make it faster than it might otherwise go. The way to do that in drafting is to specify some time period um, or uh, maybe tie it to certain certain values, right? If a dispute is involves claims of under one million dollars, it shall be um, the, the it, it shall be concluded within, 120 days of appointment of a of the arbitration panel or something like that as an example but not to say that use the expedited rules and so um because i think arbitrators are going to be less flexible around varying from the rules around discovery hearing durations motion practice timing um, under these revised rules, it's particularly important that you take a look at your arbitration provisions and think very carefully before specifying uh, the expedited rules. Yeah. And I, and I would also just, um, since we're on the topic about specifying length of talking about drafting issues, um, it, it's always good to be more, be realistic um, you know, I've I've seen arbitration provisions that said, you know, where it's a five million dollar case and they want where they <laughs> it's really great. They incorporated the federal rules of civil procedure, but then said the hearing had to be done in 30 days from the arbitrator's appointment. Um, which was a little contradictory. Um, you know, I so it's you know, it you know, for people in firms is making sure that your transactional people talk to your litigators about what's actually realistic in an arbitration. Um, You know, I've seen a number, you know, you just got to really think realistically what can be accomplished um, given the type of dispute you may end up having. If it's going to be a discovery-heavy dispute, you can't say, you know, we're going to have arbitration in 30 days from the arbitrator's appointment. It's just not not realistic because once it's in the contract but the arbitrator can't overrule it and you've got to get your opponent to agree which you know oftentimes they're they're not willing to do all right okay okay the next um uh there's a little bit of revisions in several rules uh regarding costs and allocation um, and the arbitrator has always had the authority, unless there's, um, you know, a prevailing party gets cost provision or a losing party pays, however you want to phrase it, in the party's arbitration provision, the rules provide that the arbitrator will assess the fees and expenses of the American Arbitration Association and the arbitrator in the award. However, 
They are now also empowered to do that as to, in any dispositive motion or in any emergency measure of protection, protection require, motion. Excuse me there. Um, and here it says, uh, the rule now says any order or award. Um, I don't know um, how often this may may play out. Um, I can see potentially maybe in emergency motions um, if an arbitrator feels that somebody's really been abusing the process by bringing the emergency motion, um, they can make a cost assessment um, to you know punish the uh, punish the party who brought it in bad faith. Um, in dispositive motions, I see it being less of an issue because most dispositive motions aren't made without the arbitrator's permission. Um, you know, a party's got to put together a letter that says, this is why, you know, I, I'm requesting permission to file a dispositive motion. This is, you know, the reasons I think I'm likely to prevail. You know, the other side gets an opportunity to rebut that. And then the arbitrator decides whether or not it's, you know, worth the time and money to hear the dispositive motion. Um, so unless somebody deviates significantly from their requesting letter, I I'm not sure how the the cost and allocation on a dispositive motion would would happen come into play that often. I I, I think um, one place it may happen is um, around uh, motions related to the exchange of information related to discovery, um, yeah. uh, sort of dealing with motions to compel or somehow. One party is claiming that that uh, that the scheduling order or or some order related to discovery wasn't wasn't complied with. Um, I think many arbitrators, you know, would take take up that issue when they issue a final award uh, and might make adjustments. They might just do it. It's more likely that they're going to do it right on the spot now. But and do you have any insight into why these changes were made to 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 explicitly provide that arbitrators mm -hmm. could do that? No, um, you know, the the emergency arbitrator, I'm, I'm wondering if it came out of the emergency rule because that the the allocation of the cost of the emergency motion has been in that since it was uh, since it started in 2013. So I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, the powers that be or the all of the various committees and constituencies decided it should apply to other motions as well. Yeah, right. All right. Moving on. Um, so a couple other changes. Um, we now have codified the authority of our Administrative Review Council. The Administrative Review Council um, makes administrative decisions around uh, on large complex cases only for on locale, you know, if there's a decision to be made, should a case, if an, if an arbitration provision is silent, you've got a party in San Francisco and a party in Boston, and they both want it held in their home state. Um, the AAA under the rules is empowered to make that decision in the first place, and then in the, they can the parties can appeal it to the arbitrator. But on large complex cases, the Administrative Review Council makes that whether or not filing requirements have been met, um, and whether or not an arbitrator um, should be removed um, or stayed based on an objection uh, to an arbitrator around, you know, a disclosure they've made, um, something like, or, or something like that. Um, the Administrative Review Council is a group of, I think there's six or eight 
No, actually probably closer to eight. I think eight um, senior level. Um, so VPs and above, uh, or I should say AVP and above at the AAA, um, national staff, as well as one of our former, uh, former general counsels. So there's one uh, non-AAA member and she sits on every, every panel. Um, and there are three executives review, at, review and decide every issue. Um, and uh, this has been in place oh, a good five, six, I, I've lost track of how, but, you know, they make hundreds of decisions every, they meet once a week, uh, you know, three, four people get on, tell their story, and the, the council makes the decision. Um, it's always been an internal policy and practice. This is just codifying it. Um, it their rule four has been reorganized and clarifies the difference between filing requirements and filing procedures. Um, and then rule six now does, which is, um, I think it's the claim rule. Um, it now requires that any party who files their claim is undisclosed or undetermined has to specify it prior to the hearing, um, absent an extension being granted by the arbitrator. Um, you know, a lot of parties who may have claims in the millions and millions of dollars, um, you know, they want to pay, you know, maybe don't want to pay their full fee up front. And so they they file as undetermined. Also, um, you know, they say are damaged to be to determined at hearing. Um, for most cases, they should be able to, um, you know, quantify or at least give you a ballpark number by the time you get to the hearing. Um, and it just helps everybody understand exactly what's at stake. Um, you know, if there's something that's truly undetermined and truly not determinable until the evidence is all in, an arbitrator can grant an extension of that. Yeah, so. I think I think arbitrators sometimes include in their scheduling orders a, a point in time at which mm -hmm. the parties are to um, submit a, a, a statement specifying mm -hmm. the amount of damages being claimed. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that that practice will increase and certainly will with me, um, uh, 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 given, given the clarification in this new rule. I'm so sorry here. Something popped up here. Let me just stop this for a second. <laughs> my, my sincere apologies here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not a problem. We didn't I, did, see I, didn't, anything, uh, I so didn't expect that to uh, pop up. <laughs> there, okay, there we are. <laughs> Sorry about that. I thought I'd, and, I could, and, and I can't I'll, I'll chime in one more time just to, to let people yeah. So we got about 10 minutes left here. We have a couple more slides, but if you did have any questions or anything you wanted to share with the, with the group, don't worry, somebody else is covering my two o'clock Zoom that just popped up on my screen there. <laughs> It did. It did not I show shut everything everyone down. Else, don't worry. I shut everything down, but I couldn't shut down my Zoom. My my apologies. Um, okay, so there. Let's Good. So I think the, we can go. Yeah. Um, so other quick revisions. Um, so the the hearing is now closed when the arbitrator is satisfied the record is complete, but no more than seven days from receipt of the post hearing briefs and transcript. Um, previously said that said that the arbitrator the the hearings were automatically closed as soon as the arbitrator received the post hearing briefs, but it's been the practice of many arbitrators um, for a while now to take a quick pass through the post hearing briefs and any other subsequent submissions to make sure that they've got everything before they close the, close the record. Um, 
the the rule that used to be the stenographer rule is now the official record of proceedings rule. It does reflect the use of transcription now. Um, I think because people are using Zoom and other um, uh, electronic platform, platforms to record arbitrations as opposed to um, just stenographers. Um, the AAA's online system, AA web file, is specifically referred to as a way to file a case. Um, and the notice rule is now revised to include service and communication through that platform. Um, you know, web files are electronic platform where your electronic case file and documents reside. Um, and the preliminary hearing checklist, uh, which is used predominantly on regular track and large complex case track, now includes um, a section related to discussions of cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection. And I don't, Kent, do you want to jump in on that since I know that's yeah. your bailiwick? Again, I think that's been the practice, or at least the the the. AAA has encouraged arbitrators as part of their preliminary hearings to address issues around cybersecurity, um, privacy, data protection. Um, it's uh, fairly typical, I think, for arbitrators to do that now. Um, and, um, you know, there's a range of things that could come up from there, uh, but uh, just making sure it's raised at the beginning of the case so everyone is thinking about it. And, and, and for me, going forward, I'm going to be sure to include in the agenda for preliminary hearings, I think for all preliminary hearings, is there anything related to cybersecurity, privacy, confidentiality? And I'm also going to include, uh, uh, is there anything that we should be addressed concerning accessibility due to disabilities of any of the participants or potential participants in the hearing? Raise that issue from the beginning, if it is, and at least to get people thinking about that. Yeah. And, you know, there are there's a lot that can be done in terms of cybersecurity. Um, it's, it's a fair, I think it's fairly unusual to need to change platforms or change to a secure mechanism for, um, transferring um, documents or or data, but um, it's certainly those are the types of things that uh, that can be addressed. Yeah, well, and I think it's also important to raise it because unless you're in a big company or a big firm, um, people's levels of cyber security, cyber security, and data protection can be. Um, maybe not as good as they should be. Um, and so just to, to raise the flag and raise the banner of awareness that you know this is really something you, you should be aware of. This is um, also something I think um, takes on often greater significance in the international arbitration context or where there's a cross-border element um, because of the need to address um, laws like uh, the European Union's GDPR that can have an impact on the exchange of information in an arbitration proceeding. Yeah. Um, so something else to be thinking about, right? Yeah. Okay. So I think we managed to get through all our slides. We, we did, about, we are at yeah. the end. Um, a couple any... of minutes and absent yeah. any questions, I think we can let people get Back to their uh, back to their day, um, uh, Lisa. I just want to thank you uh, very much for making time um, to speak with us today. Uh, and uh, and on behalf of the uh, Boston Bar Association, I know this is I think the second time in a year we've done a program yep. for us. Yep. And Thanks we, for having we, me. We appreciate. It. <laughs> um, if people don't uh, want to raise any questions now, but after after they've um, 
uh, gone home and come into the office tomorrow morning and they have an epiphany, our contact information uh, is here on this slide and feel free to reach out to either of us and we'd be happy to try to be helpful. Uh, and so I also wanna thank the participants who, uh, who stuck with us for this hour. And, uh, and um, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you to Kent for moderating and for your input throughout that. And thank you to Lisa and to our participants. So with that, we'll wrap up today's webinar. Thank you all for joining. Thank you, Kayla. <laughs>